This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. The FCPA Compliance Report is the longest-running podcast in compliance. Engaging a wide variety of compliance-related guests and topics, each week Tom Fox brings you the top commentators and information which will inform your compliance program going forward. Join us again for the top podcast in compliance, hosted by the voice of compliance, Tom Fox. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, we take a look at the Airbus International Anti-Corruption Settlement. James Kukios details what are the three key takeaways that he would advise a company on at this point. We look at the SFO first conviction for withholding documents requested in a bribery conviction. And we consider Isabel Dos Santos, Sonegal, and Angola. What does it mean for companies who have done business there? All on this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I know you'll enjoy it. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again for another episode. Today, I have with me James Kukios. Uh, James is not only a fan favorite, but a partner at Morrison and Forster. And we're here to talk about the firm's February 2020 client alert regarding international anti-corruption enforcement. James, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. Always a pleasure to be here. James, in the January newsletter uh, and in the January uh, podcast about that newsletter, we spent a lot of time talking about the biggest uh, anti-corruption settlement in the history of the world ever, that being Airbus. In February, we had one that was incredibly smaller uh, involving Cardinal Health, but I thought it had some really interesting aspects. So I was wondering uh, what you might have seen in the Cardinal Health SEC FCPA enforcement action that made it noteworthy. Sure. So you're right, Tom. Uh, we talked about a, a $4 billion um, resolution last month, and now we're talking about, uh, about a $9 million resolution this month. So quite quite a bit different in terms of scale. Um, so just a little bit of background on it. At the end of February, SEC announced that Cardinal Health had agreed to pay about $9 million in combined disgorgement, prejudgment interest, and a civil penalty to resolve allegations that it violated the FCPA's accounting provisions in China. So what SEC alleged was that between um, is that uh, Cardinal Health uh, basically acquired a company based in China, uh, and that company in China had a bunch of legacy um, business that Cardinal then acquired as part of it. One of them was very interesting and kind of an unusual setup, which was uh, uh, Cardinal was a distributor of, um, they called it um, Dermaco Cosmetic, I guess maybe skin lotion. I'm not entirely sure what it was, but it was over-the-counter products. It sounded like it was mostly marketed through maybe, for example, the makeup counter at a um, department store or some such thing. Didn't require prescriptions. They didn't seem to require the product being on formularies or anything like that. It seemed like just something you'd buy at a, maybe at a department store. Um, but basically, uh, the Cardinal Health was the distributor for those products, but Cardinal Health also agreed um, to take on about 2,400 employees of the customer in China. 
Now, most of those appear to be kind of the the people who are at the counters helping um, customers, you know, find out which skin cream they want and things like that, kind of retail-based, customer-facing in that regard, probably low FCPA risk. But about 100 of them uh, were sales and marketing functions. And those folks, not only were they on the Cardinal Books, but they also had a marketing account they were uh, able to use to, to do various marketing sales activities. And the allegation in the SEC complaint was they used some of that uh, money to uh, pay bribes to state-owned to employees of state-owned retail companies who had influence over purchasing decisions. And what SEC further alleged was Cardinal really had no oversight or control over either those employees, the sales and marketing employees, or over those marketing accounts that were used to pay those bribes even though all of those things were on Cardinal China's books. So in other words, they sort of, they had all this FCPA risk on their books. They had the marketing function, the marketing um, budget. Uh, it was going through their books, but they weren't, according to the SEC, exercising any control um, or looking into those uh, arrangements at all. And so according to the SEC, that led to an FCPA accounting provisions violation. So James, the um, uh, I guess the point I try to make or a uh, teaching point from this case is that um, certainly people are aware of distributors, they're aware of third-party commission sales agents, they're aware of joint ventures, they're aware of teaming agreements, um, but the the there is no fixed number of business relationships, and indeed a business relationship is only limited to the imagination of the parties involved. And so there can be a wide variety of business relationships. I admit I'd not heard of this type of business relationship, but um, it drove home to me the message that the compliance professional, the CCO, needs to understand what are the relationships of a third of a company you may acquire? What are the relationships of a joint venture that you may go into partnership with? And that uh, you need to evaluate those risks no matter what the business relationship is. Absolutely. And this, I think, to build on that point, also highlights the need for pre-acquisition due diligence to understand those relationships, to know what you're buying, and then post-acquisition integration. I think one lesson here is the SEC said, basically, you bought this business, but you didn't bring these people into your compliance program. Uh, And that's just something that we've seen from many, many resolutions that the agencies expect. And it's a good practice to bring, once you acquire the company, you bring it all the way under your compliance and accounting functions. You don't let certain parts of it um, stay outside. And this situation is a little strange because you can almost see why Cardinal would see these employees and these accounts as not even being theirs because essentially the customer had full control over them. But the SEC obviously did not agree with that uh, for publicly traded companies to, to take that position, and, and it resulted in this um, resolution. Now, I have seen in, in some countries, you know, depending on local laws, uh, a distributor may do some of the sales and marketing function for a customer, uh, either because those are by law uh, functions that a local company has to have, or maybe the customer doesn't have a, a full um, operation in a country. But this was just at, at a magnitude uh, scale much bigger. And the fact that there weren't, um, according to the SEC, these controls really created a massive FCPA risk. To their, to their credit, 
Cardinal seems to have found this on their own through internal audit and things like that and, um, and disclosed the matter to the SEC. And I think the SEC actually credited that. There's no monitor. There's no self-reporting requirement. So it may have taken a little while for uh, the company to integrate this, but eventually they did find this out and, and seem to have come uh, to put some controls over it. And the SEC does seem to have credited them for that. Uh, James, for our next story in, uh, I believe it was November, we had a conviction in another FCPK, FCPA case that we've talked about previously, the 10X case, and the individual convicted was Mark Lambert. But uh, in February, uh, the district judge denied his motion for acquittal. I was wondering if you might be able to explain to our audience what a post-judgment motion for acquittal is, how the parties view it, and then what the court considers. Sure. So uh, Mark Lambert was the former president of a company called Transport Logistics International, which provides services for the transportation of nuclear materials. And the allegations at the trial were that uh, he and his company and co-conspirators paid bribes to a Russian state atomic energy corporation in order to get those transportation contracts. He was charged with a number of different violations in connection with that. Um, some of which, which were FCPA violations, and he was, in fact, convicted on those, but he did not challenge those after the fact. The other thing that he was charged with was wire fraud, and that is what he, um, after the fact, after his conviction, he was convicted on the, um, the wire fraud counts as well, and he brought a post-trial motion saying that there was insufficient evidence for a reasonable jury to conclude beyond a reasonable doubt that he had violated the wire fraud statute. His argument um, was that he there the evidence was insufficient to establish that he made material false representations or omissions to the Russian State Atomic Energy Corporation, because number one, uh, according to Lambert, he was under no obligation to disclose the fact that his company's contract quotes included bribe payments, which is a pretty interesting argument. Um, again, he doesn't seem to be arguing that he didn't pay bribes, just that he didn't have to disclose that they were inflating the prices to include bribes. Uh, and he also said there was not evidence that the Russian State Atomic Energy Corporation would have rejected the company's offers had it known that the bribes were baked into the, into the um, uh, price that they were offering. Um, so basically, that you know, he's saying that the jury didn't have enough evidence to convict on those. Now, the judge disagreed. The judge relied very heavily on the trial testimony, t- testimony of an alleged co-conspirator who had pled guilty in August 2015 that, for example, um, Lambert had actively concealed the bribe payments from 10X. Uh, the theory there is that you knew its material. Uh, you knew that they would not have gone into those contracts if you had disclosed the fact that, um, that there w- were bribe payments baked in the price. And therefore, the act of concealing those payments is evidence of that. Uh, and so the judge, I think, pretty, pretty confidently denied that motion for post-judgment acquittal. Um, but, you know, one thing I think is very interesting, Tom, um, the same month that uh, Lambert lost this motion is the same month that a judge in Connecticut threw out the FCPA violations of uh, Lawrence Hoskins because according to that judge, the, the jury could not find sufficient evidence that, 
that Hoskins had acted as an agent of uh, Alstom's U.S. subsidiary in paying bribes to Indonesian officials to get a power project. Um, one one thing that's very interesting about uh, Hoskins is the judge did not throw out the money laundering convictions. She found that there was an element missing of the FCPA violations. The jury couldn't have found it, but sustained, upheld the money laundering convictions. Lambert has to be kind of similar, showing that even if, assuming DOJ would not be able to bring an FCPA charge against a certain defendant, they'll probably be creative in bringing money laundering charges or, in the Lambert case, wire fraud charges as well. So it's not like just because you're a foreign national who is involved in a bribery scheme, there's no way DOJ can reach you. They just may have to be more creative and bring different violations such as wire fraud, money laundering, travel act, some other charge to try to get to that um, conduct. James, uh, let me change the focus a little bit because we had a case decided that I don't want to say it came in under the radar, uh, but I don't think it's got as much play as it, the significance of it. And that was a U.S. district judge held that multiple emails could be charged as separate FCPA violations. And the um, obviously that ruling got a lot of people's attentions, attention, and certainly uh, it gives a lot of uh, uh, ammunition to the Department of Justice. And I have to admit that when I read the statute, I thought the operative words were offer payment or promise to pay as verbs. Turns out, at least under this court's analysis, that the operative words were uh, using um, use of the mails or any means or instrumentality of interstate commerce. Um, what did uh, you guys see as significance of this decision? And does this really give the DOJ at least uh, greater arguments to to bring to bear against individuals and or charging decisions? Yeah, I mean, if you're a former prosecutor or uh, ever worked in this um, field as, you know, on these things, it's a really very technical but very interesting um, issue. It's fascinating for me because when I was a prosecutor bringing these cases, I assumed every email, every wire transfer, every mailing was a separate unit of prosecution. In other words, if you sent 20 emails in furtherance of a, a bribery scheme, I always thought that that could be 20 separate violations of the FCPA because that's how I read the statute. It says uh, it shall be unlawful to, to use an instrumentality of interstate commerce. And so to me, that's what it said the use of the instrument, um, instrumentality of interstate commerce is a unit of prosecution. And then you need to show that that additional element, that that use of the interstate commerce was in furtherance of a bribery scheme. Um, it's interesting. That's how I always read the wire fraud statute as well. Um, when we would bring wire fraud counts as well, each mailing, each, I'm sorry, that's for mail fraud, but for wire fraud, each email, each bank transfer was a separate violation as well. My colleagues in the Southern District of New York did not share that view of the wire fraud statute. They would bring one wire fraud count, and then that count would would allege a number of transfers or emails that were part of the same violation because to them, uh, the unit of prosecution was the fraud scheme, not the use of the um, wires. That's not how I read wire fraud. I read that as every use of the wire was a separate unit of prosecution. I think, and so 
that's a, a long way of saying what the judge held here was the text of the FCPA seems to indicate it's the use of the wires that is the unit of prosecution. And he actually analogized the FCPA to the wire and mail fraud statutes and the Travel Act because most courts have held that the unit of prosecution for those things are the use of the instrumentality of interstate commerce. And so he said um, each separate email can be charged as a separate FCPA violation. Um, in this case in particular, there were three emails that were sent and charged as separate FCPA violations because, according to DOJ, each of them was in furtherance of the FCPA scheme. Now, when it comes down to it, if you're a prosecutor and you can't convince the jury that there was a bribery scheme, you're probably going to lose all these counts anyway. Um, so even if the unit of prosecution is not the bribery scheme, you're going to have to convince the jury that there was a bribery scheme to begin with and then that each of those um, emails was in furtherance of it. So really, this is a pretrial motion. Um, the, the defendant was trying to get it down from three counts to one count. And I guess the theory for the defense would be that, you know, it's easier to beat one count than three counts. In fact, as a prosecutor, that's why you often bring multiple counts is because if the jury can't agree on one, you've got some backup. So it's a pretty good defense strategy. But the judge disagreed in this, in this case. Now, it's interesting. This is the first case that's ever addressed this. Uh, and so even, you know, as a line attorney and a manager in the FCPA unit, I thought this was what it was. Um, no, it had never been tested. And so this is an important case going forward because it's the first case to rule on this issue. Now, it's a district court judge um, in New Jersey. The trial hasn't happened yet. If it does go forward and defendants convicted, uh, he may, of course, raise this again um, to the Third Circuit, um, which would be interesting because then we'd have an appellate decision. And that just goes back to the FCPA. You know, the more individual prosecutions there are, the more chances we have to actually have court rulings on these things. And we've seen over the years many, many uh, individual prosecutions resulted in many court decisions on these issues of first impression for the FCPA. Uh, and who knows? Another judge could could come out differently. Maybe a judge in the Second Circuit would would come out differently because of the way that wire fraud is often charged there, and the wire fraud is so important to the judge here. Um, but for me, especially as a on a technical matter, this is a really interesting case and something to watch going forward. Well, James, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. We're going to link to your client alert in the show notes. I wanted to thank you again for. Uh, Great podcast. I look forward to uh, the next client alert. Thanks very much, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. I hope you'll join me again next week where we take up another topic on the FCPA Compliance Report. If you haven't done so, please check out my latest podcast, Compliance and Coronavirus, where I bring clarity and sanity to the compliance practitioner during this health crisis. Thanks. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.